Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a registered dietitian nutritionist provides a primer on the role of fiber in the diet. Soluble type, all right, is the one that may help lower your blood cholesterol. Insoluble is the type of fiber that is more related to bowel movements, GI function. A urologist discusses diagnosis and treatment of bladder cancer. Non-invasive bladder cancer, we will recommend removing it with a with the aid of a camera. That's an outpatient procedure. And then afterwards, we will recommend um, medicines that we instill in the bladder. And a nursing faculty member shares advice about easing the transition into long-term care. What do you look for in a nursing home? You want consistent staffing because those people caring for your loved ones will become part of your family. We'll have all that, a checkup from the neck up, and a visit from our healing muse. But first, the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll talk about the symptoms of bladder cancer you should not ignore. Then we'll hear about how to ease the transition into long-term care. But first, we'll discuss the benefits of fiber and learn some tasty ways to add more of it to our diets. You may have heard that fiber is an important component of your diet. Here to explain why and to help us learn how to eat the right kinds and amounts of fiber is registered dietitian nutritionist Maureen Franklin from the Upstate Jocelyn Diabetes Center. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having Appreciate me. Appreciate it. So let's begin with a definition of fiber. Okay, so fiber, the fiber that I'm talking about is the dietary carbohydrate found in plant foods, and that's an important thing in terms of your plant-based foods. Unlike other carbohydrates, it can't be readily digested, and it passes through your GI system, okay, and basically out of your body. So we're talking about the fiber that's in your plant-based foods, which Fru is an fruits important. Fruits and vegetables, Fruits both? and vegetables, dried peas and beans, okay. those kinds. Um, and is this uh, what we also heard called roughage? Yes, roughage, bulk. It used to be called a long time ago. People used to say, I need more bulk in my diet. Basically, they were talking fiber. Okay. And uh, there's different types of fiber, right? Yes. So fiber, the two, the, the way it makes it up is there's one is soluble fiber, okay? And basically what that is, it does, it's a type of fiber. It dissolves in water to form like a gel, and then that's broken down in your large intestine. The other one is insoluble, meaning it doesn't dissolve in water, and that's the one that passes through your GI system, and as, as they say, relatively intact, meaning that it it just moves through your GI system. So each fiber type of fiber has a different benefit to it. So can you give me some examples of um, some foods that are soluble and some foods that are insoluble? Okay. Some of the soluble are things like your dried peas and beans, your fruits, oats, nuts, seeds, vegetables. You're going to see that they're in both groups sometimes too because then insoluble types, whole wheat flour, wheat bran, nuts again, whole grains, and vegetables. So some of them have both insoluble and insoluble. They all have a little blend. Some might have more soluble versus more insoluble. So are there just are there different vegetables that these vegetables are soluble and these are insoluble? No, it's more like 
they all have good they have fiber components and they that have are... components that. Okay. And that's where, you know, you don't really want to get into like, am I eating this much insoluble versus this much soluble? You really want to look at, am I getting some fiber in my diet? How much fiber am I getting in my diet? And I think that's, that's the, one of the take-home messages I want for people. You just really want to look at, am I getting more fiber in my diet? Don't get caught up in insoluble versus soluble. Don't get caught up in what type and how, you know, which food it's coming from. Really look at plant-based because that's where you look at it. When we look at all things, we're talking about whole wheat. We're talking about vegetables. We're talking about nuts, seeds, very good fiber things. So all, all fiber is basically good. If that's an important component. Try to get more fiber in your diet because typically, as Americans, we don't get enough. Because a lot of times when we look at a food label, we're trying to make sure there's not too much um, whatever, sodium or sugar or whatever. Mm -hmm. But on the fiber, on the food label, you, you want as much as you can. Yes, okay. definitely. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about what fiber does for our bodies. Okay. So the soluble type, all right, is the one that may help lower your blood cholesterol. Because the idea is it can slow your digestion rates, slow the rate at which the nutrients are absorbed, and it might also help control blood glucose levels. All right, as you, I'm saying may, because again, lots of studies, different things, we can't come out and say, yes, this does it, but soluble fiber, when you think about what does fiber do, it helps fill you up, all right? It can also aid in terms of making you feel more full and satisfied. It's the difference between eating an apple with the skin on it and crunching versus applesauce. Skin's gone, everything's broken down in terms of it. So the soluble fiber, definitely a, ben a benefit. Insoluble is the type of fiber that is more related to bowel movements, GI function. It's basically going through your system, helping your system. Um, it can possibly improve blood sugar control or cholesterol levels, but the insoluble is one we look more towards bowel regularity. Okay, so um, benefits from from both. Both. Mm -hmm. Now, when it struck me when you mentioned um, it, it slows the digestion so that nutrition is better absorbed by the body. Mm -hmm. Does it is it important to eat fiber with other nutritious foods to help boost your body's ability to take the nutrition out of the foods? Um, I don't know. I, probably, I just think it's important just to look at: Am I getting overall? Am I getting good nutrition? So. That's a great point. I don't want people just to say, well, I'm just eating all fiber because you don't want to just get all fiber. You want to get some good vitamin A, some good vitamin C, some, you know, other types of nutrients in there. So I think it's, again, looking at the whole picture. I think okay. that's an important key. What about, are there supplements that can achieve this if you have yeah, trouble? There are supplements. Um, again, as a dietitian, I'm always going to lean towards food first in terms of it. And my question would be, why would you want to take a pill when you can eat delicious food? Um, so look at what you're doing. Is there very easy ways of getting fiber in your diet? I think all too often we, we just want to take that pill. We want to take the pill for the vitamins. We want to take the pill for this. We want to do this. Look towards your plant base. We have a great variety in our, in, in our area, local food markets, you know, everything in terms of our market. So to me, it's look towards your food first. If you have to go to a supplement, I think you need to check with your doctor, your, your health care provider. Why do you think you need supplements? Do you, ha do you have a GI problem? Are you having problems with constipation? Have you tried fiber in your diet? Um, and maybe it hasn't worked. But look first. Look towards your food first, I think. Okay. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Maureen Franklin. She's a registered dietitian nutritionist. Uh, she's here from the Upstate Jocelyn Diabetes Center.
So let's talk about the recommended amounts of fiber for, I'm assuming maybe they're different for men, women, children? They are, and they're different depending on the age group. So men, 50 or younger, the recommended amount is 38 grams. For women, 50 or younger, it's 25 grams. And that's per day? That's per day. People typically, the estimate is probably get around 15 grams. So you can see we're pretty, men definitely can be pretty low in terms of their typical intake and less, women. Less than half of what's yeah, recommended. Yeah. Huh. So, I mean, that's the thing in terms of just basically looking at what am I doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, for men 51 or older, it's 30 grams as a recommendation. And for women 51 or older, it's 21 grams. Uh, do those carry down to children as well? Um, you know, I'm not sure of the children in terms of it. Um, but again, with kids, we're it's just trying to get more fruits and vegetables into them. And that's part of it, that's, is yep. the fiber. Okay, so if you're someone who is realizing they are not getting enough fiber, they're getting less than half of what is recommended, mm -hmm. if they suddenly started eating and getting the full amount, what would they see different in they their They could see some issues in terms of if you're not, if you're doing fiber too fast, the recommendations are gradually introduce it into your system very slowly so your body gets used to it. Make sure you have enough fluids with it. Sometimes if you do too much fiber too fast, um, some people might experience nausea. Um, you might experience more complications uh, in terms of more constipation sometimes in terms of it. So the recommendation is give your body time to slowly get used to it and adjust to it and probably do it over like a, a good two-week period. You just don't want to like, oh, I've got, you know, whole wheat bread and a baked potato with skin and all that because then you're going to go, whoa, a little Slam bit too your much. Body. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's not, maybe dangerous is too strong of a word, but it's not a good, good idea to have right. too much. It's better to always just slowly adjust and let your body adjust. And, and then get used to it. You, you mentioned um, plenty of water. Mm -hmm. Why is that important? The fluid intake. Because think of it in terms of the gel-like structure. So if you're not if you're not giving it enough water, it's like a sponge. It needs some water in terms of it to be able to pump up and move through your system. Okay. Where if there's not enough water, you're not giving it that that benefit that it needs. Well, let's talk about ways to boost fiber intake. Okay. Um, so I guess starting with breakfast. Breakfast. Uh, Steel-cut oats, uh, another good way in terms of increasing your fiber, uh, a more higher fiber, or the new thing is looking at a new whole grain um, in terms of getting some more fiber, a better whole grain cereal, is that time helping to boost it? Adding um, a fruit, a fresh fruit if you can, not a juice, but um, adding something like wheat bran or oat bran if you're a yogurt person, or even if you're a hot cereal person, um, just adding a little bit at a time, that can be an easy way. Now, yogurt, um, I've seen yogurts that say they have fiber in them. Is that? Yep. That's actually another category that's um, what we call now, it's a functional fiber. So companies are adding different other fiber sources. So it's probably another topic for us to discuss, but that's something people to look into. Some people might have a, a reaction to it. I know if I use some of those types of foods with fiber, it upsets my GI system a little bit. So you kind of have so to try it. You kind of have to try it and see how your body's responding to it again. Uh, and again, go slowly with it. See what your response is in terms of uh, test it with something that you know that there's you have no, no issues. Okay. Or if you, if like you mentioned the fruit, you could add that into mm -hmm. your regular yogurt your regular and yogurt. then you've yeah. got some fiber you, with it. You could add some, um, you know, granola if you wanted to. But again, look at granola in terms of, you know, are you getting a good amount of fiber? Or is it more just sweetened carbohydrate type sources too? Okay. 
Um, lunchtime ideas? Lunchtime, you know, that we go back to the basic easy things. You know, can you add some carrot sticks, celery sticks, pepper strips, those kinds of things. Um, one of my favorite lunches is I take a pepper and I put tuna fish and I make like a pepper sandwich in terms of a great way of increasing your fiber in terms of cold, crunchy. I love it. Um, that's an easy way. Adding soups. Now it's getting a little colder. Can you do some vegetable soups that you've made yourself and increase more fiber through those kinds of things? Whole wheat wraps, whole wheat bread, trying to increase your fiber that way. Um, you mentioned the bread. There's a big variation in the amount of fiber in the different breads, there right? There sure is. Yep. So, and again, checking your label for that. Am I getting, because just because it says a whole wheat grain or a whole grain bread, how much fiber? Am I, am I getting one gram versus three grams, or am I getting four grams in a whole wheat, which is an actual whole wheat flour bread? So how, I mean, how much fiber could you get in a slice of bread? Could I'd you say find... probably typically three to four probably is okay. a good serving size. Yeah, but again, if you're you trying to add, if you're trying to get up to 25 or 28 20, grams, that's, right. that's a lot of bread. Right. Right. <laughs> okay. But fruits, you know, um, you know, like a, a an apple, a pear, probably anywhere from four to five grams of fiber. Easy way to add it. You know, could I, like you said, could we add it in our yogurt? Could I add it in my cold cereal? Could I have it as a snack? Um, I think a great way for like dinner is adding more lentils, dried peas or beans, um, barley. One of my favorites. I think because I was doing this topic, I made a beef barley stew, and then I made a quinoa um, chicken soup. And it was so easy. Instead of doing chicken noodle, I didn't do noodles. I did quinoa. I did white quinoa. And then I added chopped spinach to it. And so it has a similar texture to noodles? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So just instead of the noodles... Substituting. Substitute like a whole grain. I, I use farro in the winter. I love farro. Um, I think the quinoa, there's so many great varieties. That's another good way. We're so used to, you know, just throw some noodles. I mean, you can do whole wheat noodles, but quinoa, those kinds of things are another different take. And like a cup of barley has about six grams of fiber. So again, if you're having that and a nice filling, nice warm comfort food for you, but nutritious. Definitely. And um, you mentioned beans too. That's yes. a good source great source. You know, and I think we tend to think of those in a very small area. You know, we might put them in a taco once in a while, or we might do something and put them on a salad. But again, those are the same things. You can roast chickpeas. You can have those as a snack, great snack. You can put all kinds of herbs or spices if you want on them. You could put them in a stew. You could put them in a casserole, put them in your salad. Those are great ways. And what a great economical source. Well, in um, some cultures, beans are a mainstay. Mainstay. Of... Mm -hmm. great. So... Right. Right. Um, and then let's also talk about snacks. Is that an is that a way that you can add fiber? If oh, definitely. Again, the things such as you know doing the uh, snack peas, uh, um, the different types of dried peas and beans. Again, roasting them, getting more of the fruits, more of the vegetables, and looking at what what am I snacking on, and can I slowly make some changes in terms of that? I think again we're going more towards plant based. The good fruits and vegetables they're easy to grab. We have to have them around. We have to have them in our house and take with us to work if we're thinking of that as a snack. Popcorn, another great snack. Good grams of fiber in terms of it. Popcorn is popcorn, high fiber? Yep. It's what we put on popcorn. <laughs> that could tend to make it offside of the, the nutrition part. But so yeah, maybe popcorn's go, a great go thing. easy on the butter go and salt. Go easy on the butter and the salt. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Right. And then again, like you mentioned, the importance of um, drinking adequate water. Good um, water. Intake. Washing everything mm -hmm. down nicely. Right. Definitely. Can you give me some examples of how much fiber is in um, different fruits, say a, an apple or a pear? Sure. A large pear with the skin, important thing, making sure you don't peel that skin off, has about seven grams of fiber. A cup of fresh raspberries has eight. 
A half of a medium avocado has approximately five grams. A half a cup of cooked black beans, about seven and a half grams. Three cups of air pop popcorn that we talked about has about 3.6 grams. And a cup of that cooked barley that I put in my soup has about six grams. Well, good information. I really appreciate you coming to talk about well, thanks this. Thanks for having me. Uh, this My guest has been Upstate Registered Dietitian Nutritionist Maureen Franklin. She's uh, at the Upstate Jocelyn Diabetes Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, what you need to know about bladder cancer. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. You probably know that smoking causes lung cancer, but did you know it's also responsible for about half of all bladder cancers? With me today to talk about bladder cancer is Dr. Joseph Jacob, a urologist who recently joined Upstate after completing a fellowship in urologic oncology. Welcome, Dr. Jacob. Thanks for having me. Yes. So how is it that smoking um, causes bladder cancer? Similar to lung cancer, it causes uh, damage to cells. The carcinogens in the uh, tobacco causes damage to cells, and once the cells are damaged, they start to grow rapidly uncontrolled. So the, the cells in the bladder where um, things are sitting in the bladder before they exit the body or the exactly. chemicals or whatever? Exactly, okay. yes. All right. Um, do we know of other things that cause bladder cancer? Mostly environmental causes, so um, exposure to paints and dyes, um, people that have worked in the rubber industry, um, hairdressers. Hairdressers from um, perm solution and color solution? Exactly. And, huh, interesting. So that leads me to, do we know ways to prevent it then? I guess stay away from those things, but... Yeah, most, mostly it's, uh, it's trying to avoid environmental factors, especially smoking. And it's actually been shown that if you stop smoking, you decrease your risk of bladder cancer. Huh, Okay. Um, what about drinking of water? Is that seen to flush things out, or is that does that help? Or if not you drink that, a lot of water, no, not that we know of, no. Old wives' tale. Okay. <laughs> All right. So from what I understand, there's several different types of bladder cancer. How do you divide them up or differentiate? There's uh, non-invasive bladder cancer, and there's invasive bladder cancer. It's basically as, as simple as it sounds. There's type of type of bladder cancers that stay superficial, sort of like a a polyp on colonoscopy, and there's type that actually starts to invade into the muscle of the bladder. Okay, so like kind of the depth, how deep it, it grows or goes? That, exactly. Okay. So the I'm assuming the non-invasive has a better prognosis, it's easier to treat, or? Right, so the non-invasive bladder cancer, we can treat with uh, removing it with a scope, a special scope that we use, and then we have uh, chemotherapies and immunotherapies that we instill in the bladder and uh, those have been shown to do to, to treat these bladder cancers very well 
if it's invading into the muscle of the bladder, usually we're, we're going to recommend removal of the bladder. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about how what's involved with that. So why is it that men are so much more likely than women to develop bladder cancer? Do we- well, men are usually the unlucky ones. They're, they have a higher incidence of most cancers, but uh, we think it's probably because they smoke more than, more than women do. More smoking. Okay. So um, how is bladder cancer typically discovered? Is, it's not one of those cancers that you have a routine screening for, is it? You're correct um, in saying that. There hasn't been a good screening test that we've been able to find. Uh, most commonly people will present with some blood in their urine. So uh, either they see the blood in their urine or when, they, uh, when their primary care doctor orders a urinalysis and sees blood in the urine, they will send them to a urologist. So it is important that if you ever see blood in your urine, you should, you should make sure to see a urologist. So um, it's never normal to have blood in your urine? Never. Okay. So what does blood in the urine look like? Well, any kind of red or pink tinge in the urine is abnormal. Okay. So that would be worth following up with a doctor about. Definitely. Okay, so if a patient comes to you and says they found blood in their urine, what are you likely to do with that patient? We'll do two things. We'll get a CT scan uh, to make sure that there's nothing going on in in the kidneys or the ureters, which are the tubes that connect the kidneys to the bladder. And then we'll uh, perform what we call cystoscopy, which is a camera that looks into the bladder. Okay, all right. And those can tell you if there's something there? Right, so the uh, cystoscopy or the camera in the bladder, that will show you if there are any tumors that are along the lining of the bladder. And the CT scan will show you if there are any tumors in the kidney or in the ureters. Um, are there things that are non-cancerous that can cause blood in the urine, or is it? Yes, of course. And actually, most commonly, we don't find cancer, th- thankfully. Uh, but uh, anything from infections to stones to even just Kidney diseases can cause blood in the urine. But either way, it needs to be checked out and treated, whatever it is, if it's an infection or right, something. Right, right. And, and you don't want to you know, miss something like bladder cancer because it can be a, a dangerous disease to have. So what's the prognosis for someone who's newly diagnosed with bladder cancer? You know, we've done a pretty good job over the years of treating bladder cancer. And so most bladder cancers we can keep in a non-invasive or the you know, the superficial kind of bladder cancer. And, uh, you know, the prognosis is about 80 to to 90% chance of not having, uh, you know, this cancer cause you to have a decreased survival. Um, when they're, when they're invasive, they, you know, the more, the more aggressive they are, the more invasive they are, the the decrease, it decreases your, um, chances of survival. It's one of those where um, catching it early matters, or uh, you talked about the aggressive, some some types of bladder cancer are more aggressive than others, though, right? That's correct. And and the earlier you catch it, the better, because these cancers can become more aggressive or become more invasive over time. Uh Okay. Well, let's um, also, let's talk about treatment. And I'm sure this varies depending on the type of the cancer, whether it's invasive or non-invasive. And probably also on what, the, what else the patient has going on, but um, what are sort of the, the treatment options, the range of ways to treat this? So for non-invasive bladder cancer, we will recommend removing it with, a, with, with the aid of a camera, 
and there's no incisions involved in that. That's an outpatient procedure. And then afterwards, we'll, we will recommend um, medicines that we instill in the bladder, um, anything from chemotherapy to immunotherapy inside the bladder. That you in, in put in through the, the camera? We will, we will uh, put a catheter in the, in the bladder and then uh, have the medicine dwell for about an hour or so and then drain the bladder. And these treatments are usually um, once a week for about six weeks. And is that just so that it gets um, right to the cells or the area where the cancer was? Exactly. So once you have a bladder cancer in one of the cells of the bladder, and we know that well, that it's affected all the cells in the bladder. And so we give this treatment that affects the whole bladder. So we treat the whole bladder. Huh, interesting. Um, and those are done outpatient, like in the regular doctor's office? Or? Correct. Okay. Um, now that's for if it's non-invasive, but if we're looking at something that's more invasive or more aggressive, what, uh, what do you typically do? So for invasive bladder cancer, we will recommend removal of the bladder. And the reason why we recommend that is once the tumor is invasive, we know that it has a higher chance of spreading to other parts of the body. And if we catch it before it spreads, we can actually cure the bladder cancer and keep it from spreading. And so we will remove the bladder. Removing the bladder is a major operation and usually is only done at academic centers like Upstate um, just because of all the... Um, uh, complications that can happen and all the morbidity associated with the operation. It sounds like it would be pretty involved. Is it, does it take a long time to do this type of surgery? It can, yeah. It, it's at least a three to four hour operation and you have to remove the bladder. You're, you have to remove all the lymph nodes in the, in the pelvis and you have to disconnect the urine tubes, the ureters from the bladder and you have to reconnect those to some sort of uh, piece of bowel um, and we can do different types of, we call them urinary diversions. Uh, you can either have a ostomy bag where the urine drains into the ostomy. Uh, we can make a, a pouch uh, where you would catheterize yourself to drain the urine. So we, that would be a con continent uh, diversion. And we can actually make what we call a neobladder or a bladder replacement where we can have you learn how to pee again through the urethra. Okay. Wow. Um, let me just say this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Assistant Professor of Urology, Dr. Joseph Jacob, about bladder cancer. So um, the removal of the bladder, um, is life, does life get back to normal after that? Because you talked about um, creating a, a bladder or using an ostomy. Um, are those things that a patient can get used to and get back to sort of a normal way of life? Definitely, definitely. And we have all the support here. Uh, our nurses are, are used to um, helping patients get used to these things. We have a very good ostomy team here that helps patients get used to the ostomy if that's what they choose. Um, and we, uh, we take ownership of the patients and we, we, we make sure that uh, the patients get, get used to whatever, whatever they decide. Whatever works. And it's going to be different for each situation in, in terms of which what's recommended, I'm sure. Correct. So uh, if bladder cancer spreads, um, where is it most likely to go? Most, it... like, most likely to the lymph nodes. Okay. Um, but, you know, then to the lungs and can go even to the, the liver and, and then the bones. Because once it's in the lymph nodes, it's in the lymph system and can, right? Can go anywhere, correct. 
So uh, if it spreads, do you is there some is there anything you can do to treat it at that point, or is it a systemic? That's yeah. a good question. There are treatments. They are all going to be systemic chemotherapy treatments. Uh, unfortunately, we haven't found a cure for bladder cancer that one, once it has spread outside of the bladder. Um, but there are newer treatments that we offer here um, and clinical trials to help you know figure out a cure for bladder cancer. But that's why it's so important to try to catch it before it's spread. So um, clinical trials, like uh, trying new medications, or what, what types of trials are underway? Yeah, trying new medications, new types of chemotherapies, new types of immunotherapies. Okay. So there's still some, some hope, even if you have an aggressive cancer that is spread. Oh, definitely. There's spread. always hope. All right. Um, does having bladder cancer or having had bladder cancer, does that put you at greater risk for other cancers, or is there... Um, anything else you have to do for your health care the rest of your life? Well, usually it's associated with smoking or some kind of environmental cause, and so it, it's linked to all the types of cancers that are associated with smoking, like lung cancer um, and other types of cancers. All right. And um, once you've had bladder, bladder cancer, you have to still be followed up for that, or are you sort of done if well, it's been treated and removed? Once you've have had bladder cancer, you, you will likely follow up for the rest of your life okay. with a urologist. Is it uh, likely to recur? It, it, it is likely to occur, and it, and it depends on the type of bladder cancer, but the, the non, non-invasive bladder cancers uh, have a very high chance of recurring, and that's why you'll, you'll see that patients will have uh, surveillance scopes or, 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 or camera procedures to make sure that it hasn't recurred. And to stay on top of it so you catch it early if it comes back. Exactly, to catch it early and to make sure it doesn't progress. Okay, well, great. Well, thank you so much for being here. My guest has been Upstate Urologist Dr. Joseph Jacob talking about bladder cancer. I'm Amber Smith for the podcast and talk show produced by Upstate HealthLink on Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up, bad me, bad you, or a useful question. Well, folks, two days ago, I was at an intense meeting with a bunch of colleagues about a tough issue for us. At one point, someone got provocative to me, and I said something I regret to her who I usually really like overall, but at that moment I was instantly steamed and out it popped with no real warning. And then others piped up and piled on. Do I wish I could take my piece back? You betcha. But can't. So now what? Well, first I've been paying attention to what I've been thinking since. Notice I've been getting down on myself, blaming myself, feeling bad about myself. Bad rich, you should be ashamed. Then I ask myself, is blaming myself useful? Hmm, well, other than that little bit that's useful for taking responsibility and apologies, apologizing to my friend and colleagues for my part, new no, just makes me feel bad about myself. So... I stopped blaming me, watched my thinking and feeling to see what happened. And 
Well, I felt better about myself. <laughs> I found a good chunk of me blaming my friend with, well, she started it, etc., etc., etc. So I asked myself, is blaming her useful? Well, yes, useful helping me feel self-righteous and superior, which does feel a lot better than blaming me. But ultimately, no. It just keeps a bad moment going. So stop that and watch again what happened to my thinking and feeling. And surprise. I discovered wonder, curiosity about the problem that got me and all us usually level-headed people spouting off. What was it about this topic under discussion that was so emotionally intense for our group that we avoided it and our feelings about it by spouting rather than listening and problem-solving? I don't know yet, but now I'm planning for our next meeting and what I, and hopefully we, can do differently. Be more patient, deep breath, deep breath, with the lurking frustration over our differences here. And instead of using that energy, that frustrated energy, to blame me or blame you, Use it to listen, understand each other, and just maybe solve the problem instead. Good luck to us. I'm Dr. Rich, a work in progress, O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. Next up, some thoughts on easing the transition into long-term care on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. When a loved one requires long-term care, the transition into long-term care is not always smooth. Here to offer some advice is a member of the College of Nursing faculty at Upstate, Dr. Helen Clancy. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Um, now, you've been a nurse for almost 50 years, and you've got 12 years' experience as a nursing home administrator, so you've got lots of experience helping to ease someone out of their home and into long-term care. Is it always difficult? I can't say it's always difficult because every person's uh, scenario is a little bit different, but it is a, a, a very complex decision because families, um, no matter how much they love their senior member or whoever they're placing. They don't have the knowledge, skills, or strength to care for them. People need nursing home based on late lost ADLs or activities of daily living, and that is toileting, eating, and bed mobility. 
And you can feed your loved ones, turn your loved ones, but there's still some complex medical care issues that really need to be addressed at a higher level of care. And that's when the, the nursing home becomes a lot of people's last choice, an expensive last choice. So um, it's difficult for families to see their, um, their inheritance be given to a nursing home versus taking care of mom and dad at home. So it is a, it's a complex emotional moment, and then you want to be able to manage emotions and expectations at that transition as best you can for both the resident, the family, and your staff. So it's much more than just a change of address. Correct. From the home to the to the nursing home. Correct. So. Um, what about for the patient? Uh, loss of independence, uh, big change in terms of how they lived, right? Right. And nursing homes try as much as possible to accommodate the customary and routine that the patient had prior to um, placement. But because it is kind of under the umbrella of an institution, you have so many slots to give uh, showers on a Saturday night or baths on a, a, a Sunday morning that there is some adjustment and understanding for all involved. Um, and a lot of times patients or, or residents are placed in nursing homes because they have cognitive impairment. And um, it's going to be a while before they get adjusted and their anxiety level um, becomes um, less noticeable in a nursing home. But we encourage families to, to we'll help you get through that process and once mom or dad or your family member is settled in a long-term care, um, taking them out for like Christmas or taking them out for holidays is just upsetting their routine. And um, we've done studies where you can monitor their blood pressures and heart rates, and it takes probably two weeks for them to come back to their, uh, to their normal after they've had an outing. So, but families don't understand it at first, which I can understand. It's hard to, to manage. And Mom, it's always been at a Christmas table for, you know, she had the Christmas table. Now you're telling me I shouldn't take her. And we're not telling you that, but we want to share stories and have you talk to other family members who went through the same experience. So you can make your decisions, which we will support with the best knowledge possible. Well, it seems like this is difficult if you've never done it before. And Every person that comes to this is, is Has new, Has never right? done it before. Yeah. Well, what are some of the common... I'm, I'm imagining that you'll encounter people who don't want to leave their home. That, Correct. Right? Correct. So what? how do you get around that? <clears throat> well, we try to have as many items in their room from their home that, that can uh, facilitate that feeling of homeliness, like blankets or uh, comforters or pillows or pictures. I encourage my families to make a remembrance book. So when they're get, go, getting a homesick or some angst, the staff can sit and walk through the remembrance book. Um, I, at the facility I work, we had bio boards outside their rooms that kind of gave pictures of what type of work they did in their life. Um, so the aide could walk in, look, oh, she's a teacher, and start talking about teaching. Uh, so we got to know the, the resident and the family at a little deeper level. Like She had 20 grandchildren. Um, so there was... Um, conversations that would make the uh, the resident immediately feel that they were known to the staff. And the families would feel that the resident was known to the staff to help that transition. Now, you mentioned um, the ADLs, the activities uh -huh. of daily living. I was going to ask how you know when it's time for a nursing home. Is it all based on that? Well, there's, um, there's a, an assessment form called the PRI, Patient Review Instrument, 
and usually nursing homes require um, prospective residents to have one done and there's certainly certain levels how you score and once you score it's, it's PC5 that means you need um, a nursing home level of care and nowadays many patients are in senior living places or even in home care if you're under an agency that's regulated by New York State they will constantly look to see if you're in the proper and safe level of care and it's difficult sometimes for families to understand why am I being told I have to move from my assisted living facility which seems very very nice and my mother loves it to a higher level of care I don't understand this but um, the assessment instrument has uh, a lot of research behind it and it really focuses on those late loss ADLs that the assisted living facility is not staffed or doesn't have the resources to handle and sometimes I find those are some of the most um, difficult transitions because the family's not really on board or if you're in home care the home care agency might recommend a PRI to be done because they feel the 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 patient or the, the client is exceeding their care standards or their care capabilities and then discussions with families about moving to a higher level of care was, will start. So um, as I say there's many different scenarios everybody has a different one and you want to select a facility that will, that will meet you where you're at and help you transition not only you but also the, the resident and also help you get to know the staff because um, where I was, our, um, our care structure was based on relationships because people define themselves in relationships. And relationships have many um, um, elements to them. And one is belonging, one is security, one is continuity. So if you can get the family involved in those type of feelings, the family will certainly help you um, and the resident adjust to the new surroundings. Well, I've got a lot of questions to go, but uh, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Helen Clancy from Upstate's College of Nursing about easing the transition into long-term care. So uh, tell me, what is a, a care bundle? A care bundle, they were, just, um, they were written about back in 2001 at the beginning. Um, they were developed by um, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement out of uh, Boston, and Voluntary um, Hospital Association, which is the largest consortium of hospitals in the country. And they were looking at um, care um, tasks, which were high cost and risk evolved. And the first ones were developed um, in the intensive care units for patients that were intubated to see what they could do to prevent um, pneumonias. And a care bundle consists of like three to five elements that if performed 95% of the time will lead to better outcomes. But the elements have got to be evidence-based and the care team providing the, the, the care bundle has to believe in the elements. So um, there's been many care bundles established in, in uh, healthcare since 2001. Um, when I was looking at the problems associated with admissions and transitions, I said, well, first we have to stabilize the process because you can't have variation in care delivery with, and still have positive outcomes. So we really did a, a search of the literature, and we found that there's certain elements we can in, put into a care bundle that will bring the patient, family, and staff into a better level of communication and understanding. And the care bundle we developed had um, four elements. One was um, talking with the family because we um, about what they wanted us to know about their resident. 
we do an intake on a, a, on a form, a, a, a MDS, minimum data sets, that talks about customary and routine that your loved ones did prior to admission. But when you talk to the family, you get so much more input. And also, it kind of plants the seed that nobody knows that resident better than the family or the significant other. So the family really starts to want to work with you. The second is um, we, we have a care um, family conference within the first two weeks because it's confusing for the family, it's confusing for the resident, and, and the staff doesn't really know everybody's playing part yet. So you have it right on the unit with the nurse manager, the LPN, and the aide that's assigned. Um, when we get into talking about what do you look for in a nursing home, you want consistent staffing because those people caring for your loved ones will become part of your family. So, um, so you start having an informal conversation um, and um, develop a relationship. And um, from there, you in, um, by regulation, you have to have care plan meetings every quarter with a resident, about a resident, or at any time there's a change in a resident's condition. And you have to invite the family at least annually. Well, we invited the family every time we had a care conference. Okay. So, um, and sometimes they said no. Sometimes they... they they said yes, but it kept that continuity going and that conversation, and it got to, to really form a relationship rather than, okay, I'm the care provider, you're the family, and uh, I know what's best for your, your mom or dad. So that type of um, relationship never existed. We, we started together, and we continued together. And I think families and residents and staff really appreciated it much better. There wasn't the... Uh, the anxiety or the questioning. We got to explain things in a matter of what they could expect rather than trying to explain it when an incident happened um, and there was so many much emotion involved. So it, it turned out to be uh, good for all parties involved. It sounds like kind of a formalized plan so that everyone knows what to expect right. and, and what's going to mm -hmm. happen, that sort of thing. And, and every place wants to do that. But unless you have a leadership that wants that really make sure these things happen right and unless you really take time and plan for them it just doesn't happen so that brings me to my next question what can you offer about um, advice for selecting a long-term care facility you mentioned consistent consistent staffing right are there other things that <clears throat> the research shows whether in the hospital or whether in um, any health care uh, organization or facility having consistent staff leads to better outcomes. So one of the questions you should certainly ask in, um, as you gather information about what nursing home to s select is, is there consistent staffing? And um, many times people have to go to a nursing home because the bed's available. But that doesn't mean it's the end of the road. You can certainly look at other nursing homes while your family member is in one nursing home and, and, and um, ask to make a change if you choose to. But consistent staffing, and I would say visit um, Stop and, and, and ask for a little walkthrough or visit uh, without a reservation. So, you know, they're not all prepped and, and you know, acting perfectly because they know uh, a prospective resident's family is going to make rounds. Um, so if you do, like, do a tour mm -hmm. of sorts, what sorts of things should you look for? Well, certainly look for the mood of the staff, eye contact, um, if, if staff is interacting with the residents. Um, and if the residents look clean and happy, you know, we have the STAR um, reporting mechanism through uh, CMS, the federal agency that funds nursing home care. And, you know, some, um, sometimes a nursing facility can be very good and have a low um, STAR rating. So you, that should be 
one ingredient in your decision-making process. But, but not just not, everything. Just not everything. everything. You know, follow your gut feeling. When you walk through a nursing home, what do you feel? You know, your institution, your, um, your gut feeling or intuition is, tells you a lot. So listen to it. Um, but, uh, you know, ask uh, staffing ratio. It's how many res residents does an aide have to care for on each of the shifts? Um, and sometimes that's, again, just one element in decision-making. Um, the more experienced age you have, they probably can take care of a, a, a larger number of residents. But you might want to say, ask about their turnover rate. Ask about if they use staffing agencies. Um, because, as I said, one of the big indications of quality care is having continuous staffing. And if you're using a staffing agency all the time, then that, you know, you have a lot of... Um, what do I say, uh, unplanned staffing changes, and that does not lead to quality. Well, that's some good advice. I appreciate you being here. Thanks for sharing it. My guest has been Dr. Helen Clancy from Upstate's College of Nursing. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Ray McManus has published three books of poetry, including Red Dirt Jesus and Driving Through the Country Before You Are Born. He sent us two poems that give us a perspective on male birth control. Here is There is a Risk of Swelling, Bruising, and Tenderness. The pamphlets say safe, say easy, say most men, say normal, typical, and often, and with ease, the way print fingers the crease but stays out of the fold, fonts with no stake, baseless men in toothy pictures, comfortable with their vasectomies, women smiling, they say non-invasive, they say minimal, blonde captions, Sedation, prescriptions, and weekend recovery, in that order. The doctor will like the word easy and say it as if he knows I like it. No sentence, just a three-day weekend and ice. And this is his waiting room, no place for the quiet, and the television, the commercials we stare at, the home improvement we seek. Let's do this. Let's ignore the power of doing. I can be the wind that pushes back the curtain and falls to the side of the bed. I can say the end, and you can say thank you. And when the curtain falls into place, only a part of me goes and doesn't come back, a small part. He followed that poem with this one called Post Op. We're riding lighter on the way back. You're driving and telling me the dream you had the night before. I ask if I can smoke and then you die. It's a horrible dream. I should ask if that's what weighs on you the most, but I do that thing where I try to say that what you feel, I feel, and then somehow it comes back to me. We ride the rest of the way home holding hands in silence toward a dark horizon, your dreams in your lap, the numbness in mine.
This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week, we'll look at the hereditary risk of cancer and discuss heart attack symptoms for both men and women. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening. Thank you.